Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. Well, hello, everyone. Today is June 11th, 2021. Time flies, indeed. Today, I have the pleasure of having a guest who's based here in Hong Kong. So it's good to have a face-to-face, Robert Sawney. And um, Robert's bio is on our website, so I won't go through all the details, but Robert is a sports and fitness marketing professional. Is that a fair? You can correct that. Um, with a lot of experience, and I look forward to um, discussing uh, what he does and his views on, on how that what's happening in the Asia region. So without further ado, Robert, welcome to the Reorient Podcast. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Um, yeah, I, I, I work in the in the health and fitness industry. Been doing that on and off for, for 20 years, so I have a mixed career. But essentially now I work for one of the largest manufacturers in the world, supplies of fitness equipment. And uh, previously to that, uh, I've worked in uh, academia and consultancy, nothing to do with the health and fitness industry for a number of, number of years. Uh, my doctorate is in business, but my first degree was in exercise science, so I sort of did the thing that many people did, which was to go up and through as a fitness instructor, personal trainer, club manager, or so on and so forth. Then left the industry for many, many years. Used to teach undergraduate, postgraduate students business subjects at the University of Hong Kong. And then went into consultancy, then came back into the fitness industry for the last six or seven years, now working for a U.S. manufacturer, but as you said, based in Hong Kong. In the U.S. manufacturer being? Um, being life fitness. Right, life fitness. Okay. Excellent, uh, Robert. So um, before we talk about what your work at life fitness, mm-hmm. um, could you share with us a little bit, I believe you're originally from the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, so just a little bit about your journey from the U.K. to Hong Kong, which has been your home for yeah. um, uh, quite a number of years. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah. What, what brought you to Asia? What, what's kept you here? Okay. Um, I originally came to Asia way back in the late 80s, early 90s. My father was based here. I was, came out of the UK, as you mentioned. And uh, I stayed here for a few years. I um, met my uh, wife, who's local, and that's really what kept me here, although we were away for some years in the middle while I was studying at university in the UK. And, uh, yeah, we've been back here 20-plus years now. Uh, and my son was born here, so he studied here. And so I would say Hong Kong is pretty much home. And uh, one of the things uh, that I really love about Hong Kong is the um, diversity of people here from all over the world and really interesting backgrounds and doing very interesting work. We're somewhat of a, you could say, a financial center. So you naturally deal with a lot of finance uh, types, including myself. So it's very refreshing to, to speak with someone who's not in the uh, finance industry. Uh, so you get an extra benefit from that. Uh, so um, Robert, tell us a little bit about your work at Life Fitness, um, you know, sort of the company's history and background, its, its key products, and, and, and how Asia fits into the company's overall strategy, and your, specifically the work that you do. So uh, Life Fitness is headquartered in Chicago, a big fitness equipment manufacturer. It's been around some 50 years. So obviously manufacturing commercial equipment and consumer equipment, whether that's cardio, strength equipment. You know, the major segments would be similar for all manufacturers, essentially commercial clubs, 
hospitality, residential, and home use, consumer use. You know, these are really the key segments that exist in the market. And uh, for the Asia-Pacific region, um, we have about uh, 13 uh, distributor markets that we work in, covering all across Australasia and Asia-Pacific, Southeast Asia. And my role is essentially to work with uh, the distributors on supporting them, helping them develop their business, and also, of course, with the what we call major key accounts or strategic accounts, which would be really the international multi-chain commercial clubs. You know, they may have anywhere between 10, 15, 100, 200 locations globally, even more than that, depending on who they are, thousands of locations in some cases, and manage those accounts across the Asia-Pacific region predominantly, and a couple of those which I manage on a global basis as well. So, um, in terms of the company, um, I think I've used <laughs> some of your products, but probably haven't used them very well or enough. Um, but uh, could you let sort of let us know sort of what are some of the key products uh, that Life Fitness has in the market? Whether the products in Asia are standard or there's any sort of differentiation, and sort of what new products are on the horizon or what's growing in terms of popularity. Um, essentially, the products of Life Fitness, they're, they're, they're mainly manufactured out of the US. There isn't really any key differences between you know, what they would be looking like serving the US or international market versus the Asian Pacific market. You know, most of you would know most of these products. The, the brands under the Life Fitness family would include, of course, Life Fitness. And then you would know brands like Hammer Strength, Cybex, you know, these are well-known strength brands. And of course, Life Fitness Strength. So, you know, whether it's a treadmill, a, a bike, a, a bench press, you know, all of the products that you you and your listeners may go into the gym and see every day is essentially what we manufacture. In, in terms of uh, what's more popular growing? Uh, yeah, I mean, the industry has changed over the years. I mean, what's becoming very, very popular is, you know, there's all sorts of buzzwords around, but whether it's functional training, athletic training, hit training, these are concepts which have really taken off in the last sort of 10 years in Asia, but these have been very, very popular probably for more more years than that in the US and Europe, which probably lead the market in terms of trends. So in, in terms of going into, you may think back in the day of going into a gym, which was just a traditional bodybuilding gym, you know, full of hundreds of pieces of strength equipment and cardio equipment. Now you tend to see commercial clubs and even hotels and, and other types of facilities zone their clubs out into different areas. They may have functional areas, they may have studio areas, they may have hit areas and, you know, being, it being high intensity interval training. So, uh, you know, you may see very popular concepts. I mean, from the States, you'd probably be familiar with something like Orange Theory, Barry's Bootcamp, these types of style training. And so you see there's a great F45 from Australia, which has a number of clubs here. And then, of course, you see a big, a big change from just a traditional old school mid-market 30,000 square foot gym with sort of 100 pieces of kit and you see a whole mix of different facilities in the market now from studios to big box gyms, what we call big box gyms, to 24-hour clubs which have gained popularity significantly in Asia but of course have been around for many, many years in the States and Europe as well. So, um, you know, in terms of, obviously I guess you can educate us but the concept of gym, gym gymnasium probably goes back to ancient Greece, yeah. I believe, um, and there's a long tradition in, in Europe of, of sort of fitness and using weights and other things that you can share with us. I think 
that concept was relatively uh, foreign uh, to Asia. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, you know, in, in Chinese culture, there was things like Tai Chi and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe traditional um, Chinese exercises maybe related to breathing and maybe Kung Fu, I'm not sure. Um, and, and, and maybe in Japan, something similar, I don't know, in India. So how do you see um, sort of traditional Asian concepts of, of fitness and health and how does that mesh or become replaced by these sort of concepts coming out of the West mm -hmm. in terms of gyms and weights and machines and, and the whole sort of concept that's been around for many, many decades, yeah. if not longer in the West? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. If you look at the evolution of the fitness industry, as you said, it, you know, you can even go back to ancient Greece, a lot of a lot of the original industry is built, built around strength training and weight training. We can think of Charles Arthur Atlas and Arnold Schwarzenegger and all these things, the bodybuilding era we had. And then with Kenneth Cooper, we moved into the aerobics area, uh, and, and that sort of went into the 70s and 80s. And then we, the real growth of the commercial club segment started probably in the 70s with someone like Vic Tanny in the US. And then we've seen this growth into all sorts of different areas, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, Asia has been slow. I mean, if you look at penetration rates in Asia, of course, you know, the, the, the countries with the, the biggest penetration rates of gym membership in Asia would be places like Hong Kong, Singapore, China. But, the, you know, those numbers would still be 5 6% of the population. If you look at the U.S., for example, depending on the states you look at, you'd be looking at closer to 20% of the population. So much, the, the maturity level of the market is much greater. Some places in Europe, like Sweden, I think, which has the highest uh, penetration rate in the world, would be in the region of 22 to 23%. In terms of Asia and... So just to be clarify, is that overall population or this sort of adult segment that could reasonably go to the gym? Yeah, that's, that, you know, the way they look at it is basically as, as the adult population, so over 18 essentially is what they would look at. But, you know, those figures are very difficult to reconcile sometimes because if you look at vast countries with huge rural areas, you know, for Indonesia, for example, the Philippines or places like that, those penetration rates are probably not reflective of what you might see in the metropolis like Jakarta or, or, or Manila, for example, where you may see in some parts of those cities much higher penetration rates. So it's, it's, it's always difficult to get, you know, exact understanding. In terms of, you know, trends in Asia, what we've seen, we've certainly seen most of those trends whether it's hit trains, I mentioned studios, boutiques, and all those different types of 24-hour clubs, they've come to Asia strongly in the last 10 years or so, not more, and they've all done pretty well and they've been successful. I think in terms of the meshing of East and West, you know, I mean, it's very interesting. Lululemon released a report on well-being just a couple of months ago, global well-being, and the industry has moved from this concept, I think, of fitness more towards wellness and well-being. And with that's been accelerated dramatically by COVID, I think people's overall awareness and interest in just being healthy, both mental health, physical health, nutritional health, all of these different things uh, have definitely been accelerated substantially. I think in, in, in Asia, you know, China, Eastern concepts, I think that concept of holistic wellness has always been more prominent. Has it been meshed into the fitness industry? I don't think so yet. I think there's huge opportunities that have to be developed. I mean, the Lululemon report I was just talking about, China has the highest level of well-being, according to the research from their citizens of any other uh, country in Asia Pacific, which I think is quite interesting. So that was, whether that was around mental well-being, physical well-being, relationships with friends, all the different elements that they measured in China ranked number one, which I thought was very fascinating.
Yeah, well, let's touch on that because um, it's very important. So the Lululemon study on well-being. So could you sort of first sort of define or how do they define well-being mm -hmm. and how do you do a study? Was that a survey where, survey where people basically respond to their own perceptions of their well-being or is there some other uh, metric? Yeah, that was essentially, it was a survey-based research and they asked people their own perceptions of how they consider themselves on different elements. I'd have to look at research in detail to look at all of the criteria, but it was along physical health as part of it, relationship with friends, how you feel about your job, um, your mental well-being, all of these different things. So, you know, six or seven different criteria. So, I mean, that's very interesting. And, and this was a study for Asia specifically, yeah. Asia. So what other um, sort of countries um, or anything else that sort of jumped out of that survey and study about well-being in Asia? I think what was quite interesting was that the physical health component only accounted for something like 15% of overall well-being. And I think that comes back to your earlier question about this you know, east-west concept is that, as I said, the fitness industry in general has been heavily focused on fitness. And that's probably why penetration rates in mature markets have never really broken much through 20%, despite that being a mature market for many, many years. You know, there are many people, if you look at exercise participation rate in developed countries, you know, some developed countries in Europe, and of course you look at the Americas, are well over 50%. So people regular, regularly exercising, whether it's walking outside, playing sports, or doing different activities, but yet the penetration rate for gym membership is less than 20% in most places in, in developed world. So that begs the question, is the fitness facility not offering something in terms of the overall wellness or well-being experience that people are looking for, and that's why they don't join. We also know it's other factors. It could be intimidation. Some people intimidated the gym. Some people don't feel confident. Some people don't feel they have the knowledge to exercise in the gym. Uh, some people probably don't like you know, the very overly aggressive sales processes that still exist within many commercial fitness facilities, you know, and so that is almost like selling a second-hand car in many cases, so people are awkward by that, particularly women. So there is a big segment of the population, what we call non-users. How do, how do we define the industry? If you're, if you're a club operator, do you define the industry, well, I'm in the fitness business, or are you in the wellness industry, are you in the health industry? Because how you define your industry will determine what kind of products and solutions and services you offer and what kind of customers you target. If we want to get those non-users into the gym and build the industry, then I think that's something that we need to focus on more heavily. So looking at Asia and the markets where there is um, you know, significant use of, of gyms and fitness centers, can you give us an idea what are the, the, the key predictors of interest and participation? You know, what are the... What's the profile uh, of a uh, of someone who who you know pays and, and goes regularly to the gym? Is it based on more on income, uh, maybe people who've studied overseas in the West and developed a little bit of Western taste? Is it based on sort of the job where they have either they're busy or less busy, or is it based maybe on just being located in very urban populations or maybe very international cities. Mm -hmm. Do you have sort of um, some of the key sort of drivers of the profile of people who are going to be more interested to participate in this type of, um, of a venture? That's a really interesting question. I mean, if you look from a sort of a gross demographic perspective, then the biggest percentage of people who are members of gyms obviously be looking at Gen Y, Gen Z. If you look at the most regular users of a gym, 
Amazingly, those figures uh, from Ursa tend to suggest that group between 60 and 79 are the most frequent users of going to gym, which frequent would be in, in the region of two to three times per week. I think, uh, generally speaking, it tends to be something like 60-40% male to female, depending on the type of facilities you're looking at. If you want to go into a bit more finer detail based on personas, what, what you find is that who are the people who join the gym stay a member of the gym? And do they come back frequently enough to continue to exercise? So there's a couple of things to break down there. The first thing is that in terms of attrition rates, about 50% of people who join the gym cancel their membership within six months. Now that's a massive attrition rate. What is the reason for that? Well, there are a few primary reasons, but you know the major reasons is again, the factors I mentioned. People go to a gym, they don't have the knowledge, the confidence, the self-efficacy to know what they should be doing. That's intimidating for a lot of people. They don't get the attention and contact points that they need from the facility to basically shift someone from what we would call extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation. So if you look at extrinsic motivation, you know, I go to the gym because I want to lose weight or I want to look good for a wedding or whatever it happens to be. And, and who knows, maybe your health insurance company provides some sort of motivational incentive. You know, it could be money, for example. You know, these are all extrinsic motivators. But what are the reasons? And then how long does it take for extrinsic motivation to become intrinsic motivation? Intrinsic motivation, you do it for the excitement, the enjoyment, something which becomes part of your lifestyle. So, you know, there's... That there's just an incredibly piece of interesting research that just came out from Katie Milkman. She's a professor at um, Wharton, and she just released a new book called How to Change. She conducted one of the biggest studies ever, the only study I'm aware of, and the biggest study I'm aware of in the fitness industry, with 24-hour fitness in the U.S., where they studied around 50 to 60,000 members. They created an intervention program based on the best science in the area, behavioral economics, social psychology, cognitive psychology. And after three months, they found very relatively little change in the behavior and the adherence of people going to the gym. So they were disappointed by the outcome. And what they determined in follow-up research is that probably it takes, in complex habit formation, it takes somewhere around six months for someone to change a habit. So that means that if you go to a gym or fitness facility, and you want to prevent that 50% attrition within six months, you as a facility operator need to think about, well, what am I doing over those six months to make sure I engage that member who's very likely to leave? Because I know statistically that 50% of members leave, so I know who they are. Because the less frequently they come, the higher they are risk of leaving. We know that's a very, very simple algorithm. So what can we do for that intervention? So if you take, for example, a, a stereotypical experience of a gym member, I join a gym, I get signed up for an induction program. I spend one hour with a trainer who takes me around, showing me the machines, maybe gives me a program, and then tries to sell me personal training. And then after that, if I don't buy personal training, I'm pretty much left to my own devices. Well, that's not going to cut it. Because if you've got to think about this six-month period of creating a habit, there's going to be multiple interactions during that six-month period to make that average Jane or Joe have the level of confidence to keep coming back and when eventually that extrinsic motivation becomes intrinsic motivation. So I think that's where it needs to be broken down. And I think now with the development of Accelerated by COVID, I mean, 72,000 apps were launched last year, health and wellness apps, all virtual training, you know, gamification, all of these different things. 
these are I think these are the things that using artificial intelligence and machine learning, now clubs will be able to get that data, break that data down and make predictions based on people's usage, what kind of equipment they use, how often they come, how long they stay, and make direct interventions with very micro segmentation variables based on their customer base. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, I guess you said because it, it really, um, you know, we're really talking about human behaviors, human psychology is very complicated. And um, uh, so even though it's a physical space, looks simple and some equipment and machines, but to, to somehow um, solidify uh, a customer's involvement and willingness to, to spend on that, it's, it's very, very uh, complex. Uh, one thing uh, you know, I'd be very curious about is sort of the cultural element. So when you go around countries in Asia, to what extent do you see any gyms and fitness centers um, adapting to the native cultures? What, what are those sort of um, manifestations of different cultural differences that you can see in, in around Asia gyms? Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast, and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.